preceded. Amen. Well, good to see you and welcome again. Um, just a quick heads up. My buddy just came back from vacation, so I'll fill in for him real quick. He's over there, but he can say good hello and welcome back. He's a little bit tanned. He had spent some time down in Mexico, so had a chance to chill. Just to let you know, right now, over the last few weeks, we've seen about $7,500 come in for the matching gift and for the project of the boiler, so I'd encourage you to keep on doing that. Uh, again, the matching gifts goes through and up through the Thanksgiving season and Thanksgiving, so I just want to encourage you to be aware of that and continue to pray towards that as you give and give towards that. Now, this morning, we're going to pick up uh, this whole conversation about, I really can't believe this God stuff. And again, as we've had this conversation, um, as we look at our culture and some of the things that's taking place in our culture, we see people that are saying, I'm choosing to step away from the church. I'm choosing to step away from Jesus. And it's because I can't believe this God stuff. I, can't, I don't like the things that are happening. I don't, there are things that are happening in church. I don't like seeing some of these things that are happening in the church. I wrestle with some things that the scriptures teach or that I hear preachers say or other individuals say, and it's not comfortable for me because of various ideas and values. And so as we talked last week, one of those things that we see in the, on the landscape of people's irritation, aggravation, frustration is the whole political conversation. Again, as we just just a quick touch from last week, the perception is that overwhelmingly the evangelical community is has a Republican perspective or a Republican leaning. And as people wrestle through the things that are hitting our culture, the worldviews that are hitting our culture, the values that are hitting our culture, they feel like then in some ways that's out of touch. And they get frustrated because they feel like they are being preached a ballot instead of scripture. And so they choose to kind of step away. We walked through those things a little bit last week. If you didn't hear that, I would encourage you to go back to that from last week. Again, this whole series is one of those things that's kind of uncomfortable to walk through because we're dealing with those uncomfortable, difficult things that are happening in our culture. It's one of those things that's kind of, I wrestle with it. You kind of wait till after you're done and kind of think, am I going to get a handshake or a, a sock in the stomach, you know? And so you wrestle through those types of things. But so go back and look at that. Today we're going to be look, looking at issues with dealing with sexuality, and particularly the LBGTQIA+. And as we wrestle through all those things, because that's another major issue, we'll talk about some of those issues and some of the, uh, the questions, the objections, issues that affect people's response to the church. Next week we're going to look at issues of hurt, big questions, challenging questions that, that affect the church. And so we're going to look at a couple of those things next week. But these are things that are happening in our culture as people look at the church and say, you know, I think it's time for me to get some distance. It's time for me to kind of step away, to take a different path. And so I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think there are other things going on underneath that. I think biblically there's things that we need to wrestle through, look at, and understand underneath those things to really be able to biblically respond and react. And so we're going to do that this morning. Now, I would invite you to kind of put your running shoes on because we have a lot of stuff in front of us today. And by the way, as I walk through these things and start to touch on these things today, we are not going into deep areas, really in any area. There's one spot we're going to kind of dig down a little bit more in, maybe two, but we're not going very deep in, in this whole conversation. I'm going to try to lay the landscape of the land, walk through some biblical framework. You have most of my notes in the bulletin, 
So as you see that, uh, you have a lot of stuff there. We're going to touch what are the objections to Jesus and the church, a biblical framework for our thinking, and then we're going to talk about ways in which we need to be prepared as we interact. So that as we interact with people who are far from God or as we interact with people who are part of the church but are resisting and arguing in this whole conversation. Now one of the things I also want to identify... On the back side of the, of the notes, or the, the sec- you're going to see that there are some resources. So Connor and I have talked about this a little bit. We've talked about some of the resources that we have used as we have interacted with people and as we've researched some of these things. So we have some resources here that I really would encourage you to take advantage of. You're also going to see that Answers TV, which is Answers in Genesis. I would encourage you to take advantage of Answers TV. It's like 39 or 37 bucks for the year, and you get access to everything from Answers in Genesis that they produce. So it's an incredible resource. There's some wonderful stuff that's there for you to take advantage of. I would encourage you to take advantage of that. But that's some of the areas and some of the things that we have looked at, we have used for conversations as we have prepared for some things in this area. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can jump into it. Fathers, we look at difficult subjects and challenging subjects and things that really weigh on us at times and things that we kind of ask, how do I handle this? How do I respond to this? How do I have a conversation with someone that's loving but challenge them with things that they really need to hear? Father, I would ask that you would go before us, that you would guide us, you would give us wisdom and grace, discernment. And Father, we would ask also that as we process, we don't want to offend. So, Father, as we walk through this, help us to help me to manage words and all that kind of stuff so that we don't offend except to allow your word to speak. Father, we ask this and just ask you guide our time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So let's start at the top of, of, that, of, your, of your sheet and the, the, the notes that I kind of have put in your hands here. So what are the objections to Jesus and the church as far as the LGBTQIA+. Okay, that number has, has grown. On the resources thing, I put an, a definition for that. You can kind of look at that so you see what, how that is being defined. That's, that's kind of a fluid term, and it continues to grow in different ways, so you can see a definition there. First of all, there's five things that probably really stand out in this whole conversation. Number one, that the Bible does not teach that LGBTQIA plus is a sin. Now you may look at that and you might back up and say, back up, I'm, I think that's crazy. I disagree with that. That might be your position. We're going to look at a biblical framework. But their argument for this is that the Bible does not teach that it is sin. And I would say, say to you at this point in time, there's a significant push from the LGBTQIA plus community that identifies themselves as Christian to present an argument to defend and to justify this position in the church and to say it's okay. So they're going to say it's not a biblical argument. It does, the scriptures don't teach that it's sin. We're going to deal with that more in a moment. Number two, the church is not freeing or celebrating people who are who they truly are. Let me rephrase it, read this again. The church is not freeing or celebrating, celebrating people for who they truly are on the inside, their true identity. This is a big argument. Listen, I, I know I was born this way. I know I've always been this way. This is who I am. And finally, I have a chance to fully and finally give expression to who I truly, really am. 
Okay, this is the argument. This, these are the things that people look at and they say, listen, we should be celebrating people for coming and finally identifying and acknowledging who they truly are. That's the argument. Okay, I don't agree with that, but that is the argument that people will say who choose to step away and walk away. Number three, they'll say that the church is hostile to the LGBTQIA plus community. And they would come back and say, listen, this is a justice issue. And we should be loving, not attacking. So again, you need to understand a person's perspective. You need to understand a person's worldview. We may not agree, or you may agree. But it's important if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you need to know the starting points of the conversation. You need to know and understand the underlying aspects that contribute to a person's worldview and perspective. Otherwise, you just talk past each other. And you don't have the foundation for a reasonable, good conversation. You're just talking past each other. You ever have a conversation that turns into an argument? And you know that when you are being quiet and catching your breath and the other person is talking at you, you're not always listening. Why? Because you're forming the next piece of your argument. You're forming the next piece of what you're going to throw at them to tell them how you're right. And so when that happens, what, there's not really a conversation taking place. There's just two people throwing arguments past each other, but there's no real conversation happening. And what we need to learn to do with people who are far from us and who we disagree with and who disagree with us, we need to learn how to have a conversation. We need to listen. We need to hear them. We don't necessarily agree, or you may not necessarily agree, but we need to learn to hear so we can have a real conversation. Therefore, we need to understand another person's perspective. Therefore, if you're having an argument with somebody, you should pause and not form your argument while you're being, while you're catching your breath. While you're catching your breath, you should listen. So that you're actually hearing what is being said so that you can then interact and respond to what is being said. But then as they are catching their breath, they should also not be forming their next argument. They also should be listening. That's the benefit of a conversation. And if we both have a conversation, we maybe can come to a point of resolution. But if we don't listen, you're never going to hit points of resolution. Or you're never going to help someone come to a point of resolution in their journey. Number four, a loving God and church should celebrate love and two people pledging their love to each other for life. If I am forced to choose between Jesus and the church and my LGBTQIA plus friends, I choose my friends. Again, this is the argument. We should, they are identifying, celebrate those who love each other and are pledging their lives to each other. We should do that, is the argument. And if I have to choose between celebrating and loving my friends or holding a church line that I disagree with that puts my friends on the outs, I'm going to choose my friends. Again, we're going to talk about this stuff. We're going to walk through the biblical framework, but these are the arguments. Lastly, gender is not binary. And as you've listened in our culture lately, this is a huge conversation. Gender is not binary. It's not just male and female. It's much. There's a whole series of aspects to perceive as far as gender is concerned. 
So as we have this conversation, now, these are real things that are happening in our culture. All this is swirling around us in our culture. And we ask ourselves, okay, what are the biblical frameworks? What are the biblical foundations upon which I can start to build some structure as I have a conversation? Where do I go? So let's kind of walk through a biblical framework. Now, as we do this, I'm going to kind of be flying. I'll be pausing and stopping, but I have a lot to walk through. So let's, first of all, go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Now, we know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome, te- the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our God, blessed God. Now, in the debate, in the argument, now, you know that the language of homosexuality is used specifically in this verse. We're going to come and deal with that and talk about that a little bit later because there's a specific deeper conversation where actually language matters in this conversation. But in the other part of the conversation, as you talk to people who identify themselves as Christians but then say, I'm going to back away from the Christian faith because of how we interact with the LGBTQIA community, We're not under law anymore. So why are we even talking about law? Because also, people will go to Leviticus and talk about Leviticus and some of the Levitical law where it talks about issues of homosexuality and says, we're not under law. So that isn't binding. That doesn't control. That doesn't speak to the conduct of our lives any longer. Let me ask you a question. Why aren't we under the law? As you wrestle through that, let me read from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. So, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So why are we no longer under law? We are no longer under law because we have fully satisfied the requirements of the law through Christ. God didn't just take the law and set it aside and said, I'm done with that. Yep, that didn't work. I'm done with that. We're going to walk away. No, Jesus fully fulfilled the law. And as Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for you and for me, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's not on the screen, but he gave his sin. He who had no sin 
oh, you had, oh, all of a sudden, I know this verse inside and out, and all of a sudden, I have blanked. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? Jesus takes our wickedness, takes our sinfulness, chucks it away, throws it away, and gives us our righteousness. Why? Because Jesus took our sinfulness on himself, dealt with our sinfulness through himself, and now we are functioning and standing and exist in and under the righteousness of Jesus. But Jesus can do that because he fully fulfilled, he fully satisfied the requirements of the law. And now we are no longer under law. But rather, God is writing his law on our hearts, a law of righteousness, a law of purity, a very different relationship we have with God. So we're no longer under law because law has been satisfied. Law has been fulfilled through Christ and its purpose has been fulfilled because it identified and showed us that we can't please God. We can't serve God and honor God on our own. We have a sin problem and a sin problem destroys us. And we need a redeemer. We need our sins forgiven. And Jesus has done that. So you're right, we're not under law. But it's not that the requirements and expectations of the law haven't been fulfilled. They have been, but that's been through Christ. Now, so we wrestle through that. But we look at what Timothy says, we look at what Romans says. Romans 1. Verses 18 to 31. This is a mouthful, and this is one of those prominent passages of Scripture that people go to. Now, I'm going to say this. As we look at this, the argument in the LGBTQIA plus community would say that this, as we walk through this, does not deal with homosexuality or lesbian behavior, but rather it deals with the abuse of of servants by people in authority, and it deals more with masters abusing their their slaves than homosexuality and lesbianism. But let's walk through. I disagree, but that is the argument that is leveled. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood that what he has, that, that what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For thought... For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to a disgraceful passion. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. 
Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own, in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Now, this is a big mouthful, but it walks through a progression that is taking place. A progression where people are progressively making choices. Now again, the argument in the LBGTQIA plus community is that we didn't choose this. This was not something we wanted. This is not something we desired. I was born this way. This is how I was made. This is who I truly am. I did not choose this. But as you watch and read through the progression of what is taking place in Romans, what you see is a progression of choices. I choose not to acknowledge God. I choose to reject the image of who God is and the testimony of who God is in creation. I choose not to honor his word. I choose not to trust and, and, and acknowledge the testimony of what I see around me. And this progression of rejection. And the progression of rejection led them from a place where they over there, were over there to a place where they are now over here. This is the result of various choices that are being made in the process of choosing to reject God. It's the consistent, persi- persistent and consistent rejection of the character, the identity, the reality of God, and the re- to say, I'm not going to submit myself to God's word. So walk through with me in a number of verses. Let's look at verse 18. So, you see the highlighted verses there? Let's go to... Uh, they're not showing up real well, so I apologize for that. But the last part of this says, people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. They push it down. No, that's not a problem. That's not my issue. That's not my problem. Push it away. You ever deal with someone and talk to someone who you know and you're watching them and they've got a problem? And as you ha- are having this con- conversation, you know, I mean, it's it's it's... It's the elephant in the room. Okay? It's, it's, it's like takes up all of the room and all of us are kind of squeezed against the wall. And you kind of are having this conversation and you say, there's an elephant in here. No, there's not an elephant in here. No, I don't see an elephant anywhere. Excuse me, I got to go to the kitchen. Okay? No elephant. Why? They're, they're, they're choosing not to see. They're choosing not to acknowledge. They're suppressing the reality that there's an elephant in the room. We see people do that all the time in different areas and in different ways. I don't have a problem with alcohol. I don't have a problem with sex. I don't have a problem with drugs. I don't have a problem in fill in the blank. I don't have that problem. Fill in the blank. We we do, they do. We know they do. Everyone around them knows they do. 
but they're suppressing it because they're not willing to admit it and acknowledge it. Now, here's the reality. Look at Jeremiah. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and and incurable apart from, from Jesus. Who can understand it? It's a huge statement. So when we say, I just got to follow my heart, no. Because your heart's going to lie to you. It is going to deceive you. It's going to lead you down a wicked, wrong path. It's not. It's not the beacon of light. It's a liar. Go to the next verse. I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions are deserve. There's only one person who really knows and understands the heart, and that's God. The person who really knows and understands your heart, the person who really knows and understands my heart, is God. And so if I really want to deal with my heart, the person I really need to listen to is not me. It is God. But let's keep on going in the whole progression of things in Romans. We then see a number of other things happening in Romans 21, verses 26 and 27, in the beginning part of verse 28. I'm just going to read the highlighted parts. I'm sorry it's not showing up as much as I would like it to, but you'll, you'll be able to track with me. He says, They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. There was an unwillingness to bring glory. It said, The women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. All choices being made. And because they did not think it worthwhile, verse 28, to acknowledge God. What I want you to understand is that the whole process as we look at Romans, the the second half of Romans 1, is we see the result of a progression of decision-making that is taking place. And it's the progression of decision-making that led to the sin that was present in their lives. We then come to the crescendo of this whole conversation. I just want to drop down to verse 31. It says, Although they knew God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. See, when you look at the crescendo, just go back up to verse 28 if you can for me real quick. And I'll just read through. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, again, we see that whole decision-making process. What did God do? Then God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they would do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful, although they know know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And so the progression process, I keep on choosing to walk away from God. I choose 
keep on choosing to reject God. I keep on choosing not to listen to God. I keep on choosing to dismiss God's word. Where does that lead? That progressive decision-making process leads to the crescendo in the reality and presence of all of this sin. Now go with me and just look on the screen at Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. This is one of those famous verses, and this is one of those verses that Christians will use at different times. It says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. Now, if you listen to the old-time preachers, what are they going to say? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. I see a shaking head. I would agree with that. That was not the only sin. Now, the LBGTQIA plus community would say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was being inhospitable, being unfriendly, unwelcoming. Well, here's the reality. Both are true. Because what was taking place in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is they also had been making choices. And they had progressively been choosing to disregard God and not listen to God and to disobey God. And so now the reality is the end part of Romans is just running rampant. The end part of Romans 1 is just running rampant in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see that then as the two angels arrive in Sodom and Gomorrah. They are not welcomed. They are threatened. They are attempting, the the people of the community attempt and desire to rape them. All sorts of ugly, vile, horrible things are taking place in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because their sin has ramped up to such a huge and rebellious and stagnant, ugly thing. God says, i got to deal with this. Any of you ever grow up with a cesspool at your house? Some of us have. I remember as a kid having to dig a new one because the old one stopped working. Totally pleasant experience as you see this stuff bubbling up out of the ground. True story. My brother, we, I grew up in dairy country. My brother was, both of them, both my brother and my neighbor are both named Paul. Paul and Paul, up at the farm, ended up tussling with one another. And they were tussling with one another near where the end of the conveyor system Dumps the manure. Well, Paul, our neighbor, was victorious, victorious over Paul, my brother. And with a final little push, Paul, my brother, landed in the manure pile. Actually, manure pit. And um, had to get out of there like, oh, gross. And was having difficulty, almost drowned. Isn't that, isn't that what you'd love? As he tells the story. So, Here's what's going on. That manure pit is not so bad after my neighbor takes it out and spreads it across the fields. He fills up the spreader. He loads it up and starts driving through the field. Now, when we first, when, again, when I first brought Joan home, Joan looked at the, oh, 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 that stinks, that stinks, that stinks, that stinks. And I'm kind of going, smells like home. Not because mom was a bad housekeeper. So for me, that was kind of a comforting smell, not a bad smell, but I, didn't wanna, I wouldn't want to swim in it or drown in it. Okay, that's not something that I would think is a desirable event to take place. So, but after my neighbor 
the father, also named Paul. Um, so three Pauls here now in the story. So if Paul Sr. was done spreading the manure, you could go down to the manure pit and you could walk around in it. And you'd get a little bit of muck on your feet. But it wasn't up to my waist, it wasn't up to my shoulders, and it wasn't over my head. Same thing with the cesspool. When you, when you pump it out, there's a little bit in the bottom. You don't want to go down there and crawl around, but there's not much in there. But this is what's taking place in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The cesspool is full. The manure pit is full. And it's time to deal with the cesspool. It's time to deal with the manure that's overflowing. It's not just a sin. It's multitude areas of sin. Sin that includes being unsociable, unfriendly, but also sin that deals with homosexuality and lesbianism. It deals with all of it. All of it is present there. Why? Because they have repeatedly run and disregarded God. And the cesspool has gotten full. And God has decided to empty it. Now, keep on going. What is the root? What is the root of the LBGTQIA plus sin? What is the root of it? As I listened to one of the people on the backside, they, they said something along this line. The triggering sin might be lust or pride, personal gratification, etc. And as this person particularly talked about it, she said, my, my, my linchpin sin was pride. But the root, the root of the sin was not my pride. The root was a persistent turning from God. That was the root. See, at the root of this sin, and by the way, at the root of any sin, is a turning from God. There's a resisting of God, a saying no to God. Instead saying yes to something else. Always at the root of sin, is a resistance and a pushing back on God. Galatians. Let's go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. I say, then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Who are we supposed to be led by? Who conquered, who conquered sin and law for us? I don't hear you. Jesus. And what did he give us to help us to learn to live in victory? The Holy Spirit. And who did Jesus live in to live in victory? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Everything Jesus did in life, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything. And I said this a couple weeks ago, I'll say it again. The, way, the reason that you can live the way Jesus lived is not because Jesus lived in his intrinsic deity. The reason we can live the way Jesus did is that Jesus lived by the power of the Spirit. And as Paul is talking to the church in Galatia, he's saying, guys, you can live by the flesh or you can live by the Spirit. You can choose between the two. There is a choice that is being made. 
Now, he says, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, we're dealing with a similar list at the end of Romans 1. But then he goes on. We read this last week. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Again, the reality of choosing, it's choice. I can choose to reject Jesus, I can choose to reject resting and leaning on the Holy Spirit to give me victory, and I can choose to live by the flesh. Or, I can rest in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Now, our journey to wholeness is not found in identifying ourselves with a sin pattern. It is in finding our identity in Jesus and living every day and every moment in that identity. Not trying to throw stones. But why is it at an AA meeting? You have guys at an AA meeting who having not touched a drink for 25 years still stand there and say, or sit there and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. When many guys who come in start that conversation, they say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And then after a month, a couple months, a year, many times these guys disappear. Why? Because they continue to identify themselves with a pattern of sin instead of identifying themselves with the one who gives victory over sin. Big difference. And because we continue to identify with sin, we feel like we can't win. It's it's always a panic. I really appreciate what's taking place in Isaiah. So I want to walk through a few verses here, and there's a tension going on here. So here's the tension. It says... Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies. And your tongues mutter injustice. No one makes claims justly. No one pleads honestly. They trust in empty and worthless words. They convince or they conceive trouble and give birth to iniquity. And then we drop down to verse 9. Therefore, Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight, and and are like the dead among those who are healthy." 
We all growl like bears and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressions and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and utterly lying from within or from the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off, for truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. So as we continue to identify with sin, and as we continue to identify ourselves with sin patterns, It's no wonder we don't find victory. Why? Because we continue to identify with a sin pattern. We continue to live in a sin pattern. And and we think we're going to find victory. But we keep on identifying with sin. Here's the contrast. Start in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the victory comes through Jesus, and our identity should be with Jesus who gives the victory instead of our identity with the sin that destroys. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. For although we live in the flesh, we no longer wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapon of our warfare are not the flesh, not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the damnation of, for the, for the demolition of strongholds. It would also be appropriate for the damnation of strongholds. But we rely on the Lord for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Okay, so what is it coming against? It's coming against the knowledge of God. And what do we do? We take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. When you learn to take every thought captive to Christ, you defeat the strongholds. You defeat the things that seek to entangle. You defeat the things that seek to pull us down. You defeat the sin that wants to chew up your life and consume your life. See, our identity needs to be in Christ, not in the sin that we so long have allowed to define us and identify us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Phenomenal verse. Do you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or, or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now get this next verse. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. 
You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the victory is in Jesus and in identifying ourselves with Jesus and in surrendering ourselves to the working and the power of the Spirit, bringing every thought captive to Christ. Some of you were like that. Some of you were just like the end of Romans 1. But you're not like that anymore. Because of what you have done in your relationship and walk with Jesus and by letting the Spirit have authority and power in your life to transform you. A biblical framework for our thinking. Now let's finish running here and let's talk about ways we need to be prepared. First of all, I'm not going to turn to these references, but there's a special word, arsenokoites. This is not a word you would see when you pick up your Bible. In fact, not all translations translate the word the same way. But the word is used, and particularly in the NLT and others, to say specifically homosexuality. Part of the argument of the LBGTQIA plus community is that the Bible doesn't speak specifically against homosexuality. And they will look particularly at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, and they'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, and they will say... Paul picked a special word. Paul created a word here because when you look at the time and age of where Paul is writing, no one else uses this word. So they're saying that Paul kind of fabricated and so we are translating it as homosexuality when in reality it probably really means male prostitution. But here's the problem. If you are a student of history, you understand that in around 200 B.C., 300 B.C., the Greeks swept through the world. And, and the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were, were consumed under Greek culture. And many learned to read Greek, and they were dispersed throughout the world. And so they translated the Old Testament into Greek the Septuagint. And so the, the, the Bible that many Jews read was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Scriptures. Now, many people becoming priests or scribes or doing other things, they would have also learned the Hebrew, and some would also know the Hebrew, but the language of the day across the world is Greek, and so, so many Jewish individuals read the Greek Translation of the Bible. Paul was well versed in the Septuagint. And if you take the language and you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you turn to Leviticus 18.22, you see 
arsenal coites. Where did Paul find the word homosexuality? He found it in Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it is speaking specifically about homosexuality because also as you read through the Greek Old Testament, you will see another word, in particular, I don't have it right now, my fingertips, it's in, uh, I think, 1 Kings, a different word that talks specifically about homosexual prostitution. Where did Paul get the language for Corinthians? And where did Paul get the language for Timothy? From how it was used in the Greek Old Testament. Specifically, homosexuality. Now, number two, I feel the LBGTQ plus is okay. That same-sex attraction is okay. And that any two people in love can marry, etc. So, here's a question that you need to ask. Does the Bible need to align with my feelings and emotions? Or, do my feelings and emotions need to align with the Bible? That's a wrestling match that we go through. Now, does my heart tell me the truth? Do my emotions and feelings tell me the truth? Or do they lie? What do I hold up as the standard and the authority? My feelings and my emotions or the word of God? The biblical term for my aligning myself with the Bible, that's called repentance. That is called repentance. And throughout the scriptures, we are called to repentance, to turn from sin, to turn from the ways that we have been living, from the choices we have been making, and to turn to Christ. Number three, what is truly loving? To celebrate someone's alienation from God, which leads to eternal separation from God, or to call someone to Jesus and repentance, which leads to eternal life in God's heaven with God. Which is more loving? Is it loving to celebrate someone's pattern of behavior for 60 to 70 years or to point them to Jesus where they know eternity in the presence of God? What is more loving? To rescue them or to allow them to go down a path that leads to destruction? Which is more loving? Number four. None of our biblical discussion is a new argument. None of it is a new discussion. For thousands of years, God and church history have been speaking to these issues, both Old Testament and New. Thousands of years. But what often takes place in many people's lives, history does not begin until I start to look around and understand what's going on around me. That's when history begins for most people. I'm going to pick on Eugene for a second. Eugene was born on September 12th, the day after the events of 9-11. He's conscious of it, he's aware of it, but it's really not visceral and real to him the way it is for others of us. Who saw the video of the towers burning 
who watched the towers fall, who knew people who lost their lives, or who walked through the city afterwards and saw the destruction that was present. For those of us who did that, that was more visceral. It was real. And we say we will agree we will never forget. But for a younger generation born after those events, it's history, but it's not tangible in the same way. But for thousands of years, this conversation has been taking place. Number five. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The creation account is clear. Gender is binary, male and female. The whole debate of this whole conversation is a question between, is evolution true or is the Bible true? But the scriptures are clear. Gender is binary, and it's established by birth, male and female. Now, to be careful with this argument, be careful when, when this argument seeks to co-opt or redefine terms, especially marriage. God created marriage, and therefore, God is the one who defines marriage. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Who created and who established marriage? God did. God is the one who created, God is the one who established marriage. Now, Connor was also, I'm reading through this, I'm just going to read. Connor was spot on when he spent time in Ephesians 5 a few weeks ago. Spot on. Reminding us that marriage is God's metaphor in describing the nature and significance of the church's relationship with Jesus. Here is one thing that stands out. God created and defined marriage. However, he never prescribed how it should happen. He left that to us. Restated, culture defined the knot tying ceremony. But God defines how the knot is tied. So if we choose to tie a knot differently, we have created a knot, a union, but we have not created a biblical marriage. I want you to understand that. God has created and God has defined what marriage is. We don't have the freedom to redefine what God defines. I'll move on. Number seven, the gay Christian movement bases all of its arguments on trying to bring into doubt explicit prohibitions and never offers a positive biblical prescription for same-sex relationships. Every argument that the, great, that the gay Christian community presents to try to justify or defend the LBGTQIA plus argument is an argument against. There's not a single positive piece to the argument. And lastly, 
We need to interact with people who disagree with us in similar ways that Jesus treated people that were sinners. You should take some time to walk through the scriptures and see how Jesus treated people that were sinners. We need to treat people with love. We need to treat people with grace. We need to treat people with dignity. We should not treat people as projects. And we need to learn to love, model, and communicate the love and reality of Jesus with patience and kindness. We also need to give people space and time. And we should not be putting limits on them. Does anyone here enjoy being someone else's project? None of us do. And so we shouldn't treat people that way. We should love people because Jesus loves them. We should treat people with graciousness and kindness because that's the way Jesus treated people. In particular, that's the way Jesus treated people who are far from God. And we need to be doing the same thing. We can talk more. This skims the top. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll shift gears. and We'll talk about communion. Father, I want to say thank you again for your amazing, amazing, amazing love to us. For the amazing ways that you watch over us, the ways that you unfold us, the ways that you draw us to yourself. Father, I thank you for these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Paul, as he's talking to the church in Corinth, talks about communion and talks about the importance